Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, it's a text we'll be in uh, in just a little bit. How many here recognize the name Susan Powder? That sound familiar? Some of you may be wondering, it depends on who you're talking about. A nationally known figure from the 90s. Anybody remember that name? I thought about getting a picture, but I didn't. Susan Powder was a lady who made a name for herself. She's from Australia, motivational speaker, shaved head, and she made a name for herself in the health and wellness field. In other words, her her whole thing was to encourage people to to eat right, to exercise. In fact, back in the mid-90s, she she was all about the organic stuff, uh, maybe a little bit before her time. Uh, meaning, you know, that's 20-plus years ago that she was, you know, touting that. She also believed that the diet industry and the food industry were all corrupt. And so kind of she had this combination of motivational speaking to encourage people to get in shape, and at the same time, you know, challenging the powers that be. Uh, she was kind of a flash in the pan, as they say. Uh, she, she had a TV show for about a year but the, the thing that to me was most striking about her, not only was her, you know, she had a lot of energy. She, she was like the female Richard Simmons. Uh, um, of course, Richard Simmons is kind of like the female Richard Simmons, but I mean, that's kind of what she was, all right? She had, a bunch of, she had a bunch of energy, and she'd come out all energetic, and, and she had that bald head, and she'd put her hands on her head, and this was her tagline. Do you remember it? Stop the insanity. I thought about shaving my head and going on tour, all right? I'm not going to, I'm not as energetic, but, but I thought about that in thinking about this series and in thinking about the state of the church, or at least the state of a lot of churches. <laughs> I, I, every time I, I read another story, I hear about another church doing something, it's like, I, it's, it's like I, I've got to slap my hands on my head and say, stop the insanity. What passes for Christianity these days, what passes for church, what passes for that done in the name of God is unbelievable. I mentioned last week, some of you may have gone on to look up Craig Gross, right? That's our our pot-loving pastor, right? You remember him from last week? Pot helps him pray and worship. So just today, I, I read another article, whole different thing. You'll, you'll know this name if you keep up with politics, Paula White, unfortunate advisor to the president. You know, she is a pastor of a church. Of course, that aside, <laughs> uh, which I don't think is a, is, a, is a biblical role for her, that aside, she has, just this past Sunday, installed her own son and his wife as the new co-pastors of the church. She will be taking on the role of overseer, and here's what she said. This, what she's going to do, is an apostolic office. Paula White has identified herself as an apostle, 
as an apostle. You say, well, pastor, on what basis? Why is it that she's an apostle? Because God told her. God told her she's functioning in an apostolic office. Again, I read stuff like this, and I, and I want to shave my head, and I want to yell, stop the insanity. I mean, this, and this could be multiplied many, many times over for what passes as so-called Christianity. This is the church today. And, and, and I, I am convinced we are at a period of time in the life of the church where there is a desperate need for God's people to return to discernment. It's interesting, you read through the Old Testament prophets, which you know I've been doing some amount of and prepping for what are our Sunday night messages going through the minor prophets, and along with the typical stuff that you find God pointing out in the life of Israel, you know, the typical sin and idolatry, rebellion, covenant breaking, you know, the, the immorality, the stuff that you would expect to be in there, in many of these prophets, and even the major ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, bring this out as well, another critical problem in Israel is they didn't know stuff. God is again and again calling them out for what is their lack of knowledge, for what is their inability to discern the truth, for what is their willingness to embrace whatever heretical, idolatrous idea comes down from whatever leader or whatever priest or whatever king brings it to them. It's like they lack any ability whatsoever. And in fact, the prophets will say, and it's even repeated in Proverbs, that my people suffer for a lack of knowledge. Discernment is a critical need in the life of the church, and so that's why we've been giving so much time to this topic. We're nowhere near done, all right? So we've defined discernment, and now we're in a a section where we are defending it. And so after we got through the basic definition, looking at the biblical material, we're taking it a step further. I, I really believe that discernment is not just something that is personal and individual. What I mean by that is the church should take it seriously, not just the pastor, And not just you when you're reading books or listening to sermons, but as a church, we should be concerned about discernment. We should be concerned for ourselves and for others in the pew in regard to what they're listening to, how they're being influenced, what are the quote-unquote Christian voices that that are trying to speak into their lives, whether that is by preaching, books, music, or movies, any other forms of media, podcasts, blogs, whatever other kind of media there could be, I I think we need to take responsibility that this is a a ministry, this should be a part of the life of the church, that we are committed to upholding the truth, which at times may mean calling out error. That's not an easy thing though, right? It, It can be a challenging thing can be a confrontational thing. And so, here's what we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks in this defending it. We looked at a biblical defense of this, uh, and then we've been in a brief historical defense of discernment. So, for sure, the Bible calls on us as a church 
to be discerning as a body of believers, and that that discernment includes upholding truth, contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and at the same time call, calling out those like Paul who, who are spreading their teaching like a cancer. Then, then we did something at the, at last week, and we'll finish it up tonight and finish actually this section up tonight. And, and that is tracking this through the history of the church. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that I know some folks like, others don't, history, right? And it's, it, it's just one of those things that you know, people glaze over when they hear history. Others, they get all, all into it, all right? They get all into it. And so I've given you on the back of your notes, as I mentioned it last week, it's the same thing. Uh, that there is this brief historical sketch. And when, I, and when I say historical sketch, I don't mean of everything that could be in the church. Uh, I just mean a brief historical sketch of how the church has either engaged in discernment or not. In fact, really, if you were to, if you were to lay out church history, you could almost lay it out in those terms, that you could lay out church history looking at the various ways the church sought to correct challenges to orthodoxy. So we looked at that in the New Testament. We looked at that in the first few hundred years. We ended last week by getting up into like the eight, nine hundreds, a thousand. And what's, what's the reigning paradigm of church life in that period of time that will extend on up into the 1500s? It's Catholicism. Something definitely starts to happen, and there's a lot of reasons why Catholicism becomes what it is, what it, what it was for sure in the Middle Ages. But as the church gets bigger and bigger, and in fact, as the church no longer cares as much about individual conversion, but it becomes this thing, if you live in a particular country where there, or region where there are enough Christians, then you're a Christian too. We also have the development around this time where there's now no longer a distinction between church and state. The church rules the state. And so whatever state that is, if you live in it and if you're born into it, then you're a Christian. But the church became ultra-authoritarian. You have the authority and power of the pope. And you have the authority and power of the priesthood. And here's where they exerted that. Other than, rather than the time that we had that we saw like in the three, four, five hundreds where there was this rich theological discussion where, where people were reading the, the Word, in particular the pastors of the time were reading sa- certain sacred texts, biblical texts, and they were bringing those to bear on the false teaching I think the Catholic Church kind of circles the wagons, and they make this decision. Again, this is really simplified, by the way. Who's going to interpret the Bible? The Pope. Are there other interpretations of it? Nope. How do you know? Because the Pope said so. <laughs> Very much as a self-sustaining kind of system. Besides, it's written in Latin. And do you know what the common layperson does not have in their home or in the quote-unquote pews? A Bible. They don't have them. And it wouldn't matter because most of them couldn't have read them anyway. Oddly enough, a little side note of history here, a lot of priests were illiterate too. A lot of them could not read the text either. 
And yet they're the ones standing up trying to teach what the text means. So what happens is you have the Pope telling everybody, here's what to believe. You have a very select amount of material that is coming down to the churches. And so there's absolutely no discernment in large measure for centuries. You have this odd creation of papal authority, church tradition, and what what becomes church life but going through the rituals, going through, you know, the various parts and pieces that whatever pope said they should go through. Now, all along the way, you certainly have some voices that are coming against the Catholic Church, but they're dealt with swiftly. They're dealt with violently until we get to one of the most interesting characters, I think, in all of history. I mean, a a guy you'd really want to have dinner with, all right? I think he'd get on your nerves after a couple hours, but initially he's going to be a hoot. Martin Luther. And appropriately enough, Martin Luther begins to challenge the teaching of the Catholic Church, because he has been assigned the task of teaching the book of Romans to seminarians, to those studying for the priesthood. So they ask Luther to teach Romans, and in the midst of teaching Romans, Luther realizes he's not saved. He's not actually right with God. It's through the teaching of Romans that his his heart is gripped, and he is converted gloriously to Christ, and it's then through the teaching of Romans that I think as much as nailing the 95 theses on the door at Wittenberg, I think it is his teaching on Romans that ignites the fire of the Reformation as much as anything. Because it is in Romans that he realizes, I'm not saved because I engage in some kind of sacrament. I'm not right with God because the the priest transforms the body, you know, the the elements to actual body and blood. I'm not saved because I go to confession. I'm not saved because of marriage. I'm, I'm not saved because of these rituals. I'm saved because by faith, I believe in Christ and Christ alone, and God then grants me righteousness. This, by the way, was a radical idea in the day. This changes everything. Because along with this Work in Luther's heart through Romans, Luther becomes a champion of translating the Bible into the common language. Of course, for him, that would be German. And then we have the printing press. So Luther's not only pumping out sermon after sermon, tract after tract, to, to defend his, this theology, a right understanding of the gospel, a right understanding of Scripture, that the Pope does not get to decide what the Bible means, that he, he's, he's not Christ on earth. He is not the, the Christ-ruling presence on earth. That is not his job. His tradition has no binding on us. So, so Luther then begins not only pumping out these tracts, but also Bibles, putting them into the hands of the people. And, and he begins teaching them, here's how you should understand this Bible. And we have then this, this rush of what I would say discernment flooding into the church. Now, don't misunderstand this. Again, this is a simple sketch of church history because there's a number of things these guys get wrong as well, right? Right? whether Luther or Calvin or Zwingli. I mean, a lot of these guys get stuff wrong. Moving on to the Anabaptists, a lot of these groups end up going in directions that that perhaps they would have done well to hear discerning voices from other people. 
Nonetheless, this is an important moment in church history. The Bible now is brought back into a place of centrality for the church. People want to take teaching and measure it against the canon, measure it against the Scriptures. Unfortunately, though, this ends up taking us in another direction. So we swing the pendulum, historically speaking, and this leads to what's called scholasticism. You don't have to write that down. I don't even know if that's in there. It's like cold, dead orthodoxy. In other words, now they're just studying the Bible for the sake of studying the Bible. It becomes academic. It becomes dead. Accurate, maybe, but there's no life in it. So then they try and swing that thing back the other way. And again, without getting into a whole lot of detail, and you might think, too late, all right, you've already done it. Without getting into a whole lot of detail, now we enter into a time in the church life, in the culture as a whole, let's say 17, 1800s, where people now are all about experience. They want to feel it. They want, to, they want to experience God. You had a German in the 1800s, you ready for this name? By the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. I mean, if you had to make up a German name, that's it, right? That is it. That is as, as German as anything could say German. And this, 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 this whole, his whole thing, your relationship with God, here's what it was based on. Your feeling of absolute dependence upon God. Doesn't that sound sweet? That sounds... Sounds lovey, right? Kind of, kind of, you know, spiritual sounding. Sounds like a devotional of sorts. Unfortunately, he did not believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. He didn't really even believe in the Trinity. He for sure didn't believe in the little resurrection of Jesus Christ, nor did he believe that Christ and Christ alone was the only means of salvation. In fact, his whole desire was to make Christianity palatable to a modern world that was embracing Darwinism, that was embracing science as its God, how do we get that world to still believe in the gospel? Well, get rid of this Bible authority stuff. Get rid of, who's going to believe in this ancient mystical book with all its miracles and weird stuff? Now, get rid of that. And instead, your relationship with God is based only on your sense of dependence upon Him. Quite frankly, there is a strain of church life today that's never recovered from him. That there is a strain of, of liberal churches. This, this is their thing. You can identify them through a variety of ways. One, you'll never hear them say the Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God. You'll never hear those words. And they will almost always only teach from the Gospels. And... These churches will then often focus all of their effort on following the example of Jesus. Now again, at first blush, you hear this, you see it, you think, oh wow, the Gospels, they're talking about Jesus, so this must be good. Till you realize their whole intent, what undergirds their theology is this very idea. We're, we're trying to make the Gospel more palatable to modern mind. It's all about your, your dependence upon God your own personal relationship with Him in some kind of ambiguous way. So this whole idea of, of, of experience, this whole idea of I get to determine what's true and what's not true, this is the kind of stuff that's flourishing. 1800s, 1900s. And then you have some reactions against this in a variety of different groups, though we don't have time to bring this up. But now you get to where we are today, and here's what we have a combination of. 
So we have a combination of churches that I think have the same heart and desire. Every deviation from orthodoxy, I want you to hear this clearly, every deviation from orthodoxy has always included this justification. We're just trying to reach people for the gospel. That's exactly what they were doing in the third century when they were saying modern Greek men, the mind, the modern Greek mind won't accept God in the flesh. They won't accept it. They'll never believe that. So we're going to have to teach carefully. If we want them to believe in the gospel, we're going to have to we're going to have to teach it in a way that it appeals to the modern mind. So even going back 1,500, 16, 1,700 years, it was still the same impulse, and that is what's happening today. It is still that same impulse. That in order for us to reach the culture with the gospel, that's all we're doing. My concern is, based on all of these influences, the, the lack of authority in Scripture, the elevation of, of humanity, the elevation of man as the center of the universe, this, this obsession with experience, what it means to me, how it feels to me, this has created for us a very dangerous and toxic theological soup that the church is spooning from these days. And they're just, they're just eating it up. And so you have these, these, this one set of churches that probably if you were to talk to them would, would sound theologically orthodox. But in fact, they're engaging in methods and uh, they're engaging in, in ministry philosophies that clearly are compromises with the world. Then you have another strain of churches, the liberal progressive churches, that in essence are abandoning orthodoxy, trying to reshape it. And so we have, we have these who, in the name of reaching the culture for the gospel are saying, no, we need to rethink gender issues. We need to rethink sexuality. We, we, need, we need to rethink, you know, creation. Uh, we, we need to rethink all these things because the modern mind just doesn't accept the biblical worldview anymore. So I, th- I think we are in a serious time. I think we are in a dangerous time. I think we are in desperate need of another correction. I think there needs to be a swing back I think, we, I think we need to stop the insanity. I, th- I think there needs to be sensibleness brought back to the church. That there would be a wholesale number of churches that think on Sunday morning during the main worship service that it is appropriate that Jesus would think it appropriate in the worship of God amidst God's people to sing some of the most secular songs as part of a worship service. I mean like singing ACDC Highway to Hell. I've told you about that one. That's probably the most egregious, but that's not it. I've known of churches that opened with Britney songs, with Beyonce songs. All right, if you don't know, who the, you know what those are, just add Judd Copeland. All right, he knows all of them. Okay, so, I mean, he loves all that. That's his favorite. Uh, so if you need to know the most recent songs, he's your guy. All right, but in other words, these are, these are what these churches are opening with. They're covering these songs, and I just give that as an example. Why would we ever think that is Okay. Just trying to reach the world for Jesus, man. 
just get on board. We're just trying to save the world from we're just trying to save the world. But save them to what? Now I I know folks may hear hear me and my tendency. You know, again, you may wonder, is this all legit? Is this all real? I mean, do we really have to worry this much? Uh, again, church, I, I'm deeply concerned that, that we, we are so greatly going off the rails. Yes, some of these locations, some of these churches can be very successful. And, and I hope you hear me. This is not sour grapes. I've been accused of that. Oh, it's just sour grapes. Oh, because you have churches like this that are growing. Yeah, cancer grows too. Really rapidly. Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Set bread out and see how fast mold grows. Are you going to eat it? In other words, don't, just don't tell me you got this explosive growth. That's not, it's not a sign to me. It doesn't mean anything to me. My concern is what are you reaching them to? What are you reaching them with? And then what are you reaching them un, unto? I, I, am, I am concerned that the church needs a correction. And so, I hope and pray, obviously we're not going to do that, who are we? But I do pray for the church. There is a need then for this kind of correction. The good news is, is I think some of the greatest moments in the church's history has been when she has corrected. They've been painful, but they've come out of it, all right? And so, I mean, if you look at that, not that we're headed to another reformation, but I, I don't know what God will do with His church but, but I, I, I do see the potential. Correction can often lead to genuine revival. And that would be my prayer, that we would get back to the Word, that God's people, us, we would, we would love the Word, we would know the Word, and that we would be willing then to defend it, to be discerning people. Now, I told you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I, and I just want to read this, and then we're going to make these concluding points. It'll just take, take a minute or two just to see that, that I think, you know, where they were nearly 2,000 years ago is where we still are. Just as, as Paul's instruction to Timothy, he does this more than once. There are a few passages in the New Testament that read really similarly to this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. Now, you want to stop there for, for a minute. When are the latter times? Now. They were then. They, they were then. The, the reference here that Paul makes to latter times, he's not being prophetic. I mean, he is, but he's not. In, in other words, he's not telling Timothy, all right, some other generation is going to have to deal with this stuff because he's going to end the text by saying what he needs to command and teach. No, no, Paul's writing this because he's very concerned this is what is coming to Ephesus where Timothy is pastoring. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, we see some specific issues they were facing. Forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Thank you for bacon. All right? Go ahead. Eat it. Go ahead and eat it. You can eat it. You can eat bacon. Go ahead. All right? For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. In other words, if you pray over it, eat it. All right. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, 
nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you have carefully followed, but reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach." If you were to jump over to 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'd find him saying something very similar. But, there, but in these days, men will not stand for solid teaching. Instead, they will surround themselves with teachers who do what? You remember this phrase? Who will tickle their ears. Which when you first hear it, it sounds really weird. All right? I mean, I, you know, to tickle the ears, but we understand what it means. I mean, I don't know if your ears are ticklish. I don't even know if that's a thing. But you understand what that means, right? To tickle the ears is to do that which is pleasant to the ear, right? I, I recognize there are some things in this word that are hard. They're hard to understand. And then there are some things that aren't hard to understand that are hard. And it could be a temptation for any of us to want to just surround ourselves with those who say things that we like to hear. But this is the warning, and this is what I think Paul is urging Timothy to do. Make sure you teach and preach the truth. And here's what I think he's really getting at. You are facing a time when people will not want to hear the truth, but you preach it anyway. By the way, this has always been the case. There's never been a time in the history of the world where people outside of the church were like, yeah, give me some of the, of the Bible preached rightly, all right? In other words, lost people hate the Word until they are then confronted and convicted and brought into saving faith. This, this is, though, is what, is what Paul is warning Timothy about, saying there could be even those who rise up within the church, those who, who will depart from the faith. They're among us. You need, you, you need to defend the church against this. You need to stand up against it. So let's finish this out. Let's then consider then what are some of the barriers to discernment? Why don't we do this? And we'll just fill these in uh, just as a final thought here on this particular section. Uh, What are some of the barriers to discernment? I think there are four. Number one would be a lack of urgency. I think one barrier to being more discerning is that some people don't think it's urgent. But it is. It is. I don't see signs that in, in wholesale the church is getting healthier. Now, there are certainly pockets where I see really good things happening, but there, but there is a sense of urgency. Uh, I, I think we, sh- we should recognize now is the time. We take advantage of the time now. So I think some people may not think, well, it's, it's not that big a deal. So I think a lack of urgency. I think another barrier is the concern of knowledge. Some people don't think they know enough. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. If I, can, I, can I listen to somebody's sermon? Can I, can I tell if, if that's according to the Word or not? Now, that's part of our series, right? That's part of why we do this. But, but I, I would suggest this. This is another reason why I, again and again and again, encourage us to spend ample time in the Word, studying God's truth, exposing ourselves to good teachers, preachers, and authors. 
that I am feeding my mind and heart with the truth. That I'm able to discern that which is false because I'm so familiar with that which is true. And really, here's what I think we're trying to do. I'm trying to help us develop this certain sense of things uh, in which we are able to say, you know, I may not know exactly what's wrong with what that guy's saying, but something sounds off. Something sounds off. What was he getting at? And so that you would then take time to consider, all right, so in what ways does this not line up with what Scripture is saying? I think there's another barrier. That is the label of judgmental. That's a big one, right? Oh, you're just being judgmental. Calling out these teachers or naming them by name. Who are you? Who are you to pass judgment? First of all, that's a red herring, by the way. I'm not passing judgment on anybody. In other words, I, I'm making no comment on what, what I know about what God's going to do with them. I can only tell you what the Word says about what they're saying about what the Word says. So there's a fine line, perhaps. But understand, this is, not, this, is not, this is not a realistic label to be placed upon us, to be judgmental. And I, this is going to shock you. I've been called judgmental. Does that, is that, can you imagine that? I have been, all right? I've been called, been called worse, probably, probably not to my face, but I've been called worse ju- being judgmental. But again, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a label that sticks. Now, if, 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 I, if I'm doing like my, when I get carried away and doing my snarky thing and saying insulting things, all right, yes, perhaps, okay? Perhaps that is legit. And my biggest problem is my mouth getting in the way. Uh, so, I understand that. However, if genuinely looking at the Word and looking at the words of somebody else, what they say is a word from God and lining that up with Scripture, again, that is discernment. It is not judgment. For example, I'm not being judgmental. When I hear someone like Priscilla Schreier speak to the devil in her prayer to say that could be blasphemous. Because I'm not going to speak to the devil as if he has the same omnipresence as God, for one, right? Do I have biblical justification for, in prayer, speaking to the devil? No. It's not judgmental. She could very well be a fine mom and wife and a lovely person to be around. I don't have any idea. But I can tell you, if that is what is being taught and encouraged... It's a violation of Scripture. That's not being judgmental. It's just being discerning. When I hear a guy like Kenneth Copeland say, your faith should guarantee you wealth beyond your imagination. I'm not being judgmental. When I say that's foolish. When I say there's nothing in the Bible that says that. When he comes back and says, well, Jesus had somebody who kept the money. He must have had a lot of it. I've heard guys say that. right? Judas keeps the money, so Jesus must have had a lot of money. I I can't imagine. I can't imagine what kind of Bible these people are reading. So is this being judgmental? No, it's taking their words and comparing it 
to Scripture. And then finally, there's the fear of confrontation. This may be our biggest barrier, right? What if somebody in conversation says, you know what? I heard the best sermon from Jesse Duplantis. I'll just use a wacky illustration. I I heard the best Benny Hinn sermon. I I think you'll be blessed by it, all right? I don't even know if he actually preaches sermons anymore. Uh, You know, something like that. Or or maybe even something like, you know, I I heard a sermon from Stephen Furtick. I don't know if you know that name, but Elevation Church in Charlotte. Uh, Boy, it it really blessed me. So at that point, your mind is racing, isn't it? Should I say something? What do, mm, what do I do? If, so, if, if, some, if somebody, you know, places um, heaven is for real in my hands and says, this book really blessed me because God sent a four-year-old boy to heaven, come back and tell the rest of us what it looked like. So what, what, what do I do with that? This, this is the biggest concern, this fear of confrontation. And, and I, I can only tell you this, sometimes we might have to be willing to tell people the hard truth because that is the loving thing to do. Now here... Let me give this final instruction, though. Let me suggest the problem is, is not that what you're going to say is confrontational. It is in the manner in which you do the confronting. It's got to be with a lot of grace and a lot of love and maybe even a lot of patience. In fact, it may even have to look something like this. We'll talk more about this as we go on with this series. It may even look something more like this. You know what? That's interesting. You, you bring him up. Here's what I want to do. Let's, let's sit down and let's Let's listen to this together. And, let's, and I'll comment as we go along. You know, I'll, I'll tell you kind of what I think about this. And begin to point out ways in which this seems to not line up with what Scripture says. So I, I understand this can be a real barrier. It can be a real fear. Especially when it comes to family, friends. But I would just encourage you with this. My guess is there are a lot of other topics in which you are more than willing to be confrontational about. Can I just say one word? Politics. You'll get all up in somebody's business about politics, won't you? In our culture today, for sure. Oh, but when it comes to theology, which by the way, is infinitely more important than anything that ever goes on in politics, ever. They could launch nuclear missiles at us now. It's still not as important as theology. It's not as important. That's just going to kill the body. Bad theology kills the soul. Which would you rather protect? I mean, granted, I want both of them around for a while, right? I want both of them around. So, so we're willing to confront on some things. Hot topic issues. In fact, some of you maybe have even confronted people you don't even know because you overheard them in a conversation saying something, this thing about this political issue or that thing about that political issue. But when it comes to theology and truth, sometimes we just we feel like we're just, we just need to back off on that. You will agree to disagree. So I would just encourage you to think differently about this. It's, it, it's far more serious. Far more serious. Now, next time we're together, we're going to now be... Uh, In our third section, we're going to be laying out the anatomy of a false teacher. And then we'll do the good teacher. All right? So we're we're going to lay those out together.
looking at a false teacher and looking at a true teacher. How does the Bible lay these out? Because it does. The Bible lays both of these out pretty clearly. What does it look like to be a false teacher? What does it look like to be a true teacher? Uh, and so we'll take some time work our way through that. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you again for gathering your people. Grateful for time together and time in your word and time in prayer. Uh, I am grateful for this fellowship of believers. I am grateful for their willingness to be a part of this time tonight. I pray, God, that each and every one of them would know your hand upon them, your wisdom, your grace, your mercy, your peace, your patience guiding them in the days to come. We thank you, God, that we have been called into your service, and now we pray that we would fulfill those obligations in faith and obedience to you, that we would live in a way that glorifies you. Use us as you see fit and as a means to your end. We ask that you gather your people back together again, that we can worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.